What do you say to people who say positive thinking doesn't work? They don't know what they're talking about. Go to prison for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that is the end of that episode. <laughs> this episode of the Matt Brown Show is proudly brought to you by the Unique Speaker Bureau. You know, it's a hard-learned reality that the right speaker will provide the impetus for action, be the catalyst for change and a motivator for progress. With a unique understanding of the market it serves, the Unique Speaker Bureau has developed the ability to creatively pair the right speakers with the right event, aligning it with clients' objectives and keeping it within budget. The USB's collaborative team of keynote speakers, MCs and program directors are carefully chosen according to their presentation content, professionalism, expertise, experience, depth and collaboration. If you would like to book our guest today, Rusty Labushkachny, please reach out to the Unique Speaker Bureau at uniquespeakerbureau.com or reach out to Paul at paul at uniquespeakerbureau.com. Forgiveness. Nelson Mandela once said, quote, As I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I would still be in prison, end quote. Imagine the scene. You are a successful businessman with a 40,000-acre farm nine sports cars, and multiple successful businesses. Then one day, everything is taken from you. Rasti Labuskakni has been through a trauma few have experienced anywhere in the world. In 2003, the successful Zimbabwean businessman who ran a safari outfit, flew his own aircraft, and had a fishing resort on Lake Kariba, was framed by a poacher, the police, and the courts, and wrongfully convicted of drowning a poacher. He served 10 years in Zimbabwe's prisons, including the notorious Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison during the Zim Dollar Crash with food shortages, no running water, and people dying around him every single day. On this episode of The Matt Brown Show, Rusty shares his lessons about forgiveness, gratitude, and finding true freedom in life. There are so many powerful nuggets here, guys, and this is without doubt one of the most powerful human stories I've encountered on this show. So strap yourselves in for a seriously epic douse of perspective. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Are we live? Awesome. How's it, guys? Welcome back to the Map Round Show. Today, we're going to have a pretty insane conversation <laughs> with this man who's seemingly unbreakable. He is the uh, author of this amazing book called uh, Beating Chains, uh, Rusty Labuskakni. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, man. So, um, who are you? And uh, what's the headline backstory here? Um, how did we get okay. to this point? I'm a fourth generation Zimbabwean from a cattle ranching background. Um, was sent to boarding school at six years old, 200 k's away. I'm just giving you a background of sort of the resilience you need to get through what I went through, and I, which is a huge question I'm asked all the time. And uh, lost my dad when I was 12. We were four kids, and my mom didn't have a lot of money, so we grew up struggling. The Rhodesian War was all the way through my teens. So, and that was a different way of life when you're a farm boy. So. Um, boarding school all the way through school, left school, started a trade, then got into the safari industry and decided it, I was always ambitious growing up without, you know, with not much. Um, but it was a rugby was, a um, my life at that time too. I was, uh, I became a national rugby player. For Zim? 
Yeah, I love to really? work better. Yeah, yeah. No I played for Zimbabwe. Yeah, what I'm position were you? Flank. Really? Yeah? Yeah. You look like a bit of a flank. You know what I mean? Well, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was the open side, so I just remained extremely fit, yeah. And then started my own business when I was about 25, I think it was, and became very successful um, to the point where I was flying my own aircraft. I had a fishing resort on Lake Kariba, five safari camps. I bought a 40,000 acre ranch with 828 of cattle, all on credit. I was just uh, had a water well drilling machine. So I went for it. I drank you, big and I, and I hammered it. So yeah. you were a boss, basically. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I had you know, a lot of guys working for me. Don Rusty. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was very fortunate, Matt, but I, my, lawyers, my, lawyer, my lawyer always said you like a cat. You always land on your feet because I used to take wild risks. And just always came through, you know, with the faith and hard work. Worked like a machine with a great bunch of guys. And then at my fishing resort in 2000, when all the land invasion chaos started, there was a lot of fish poaching with netting from a fishing cooperative close to my fishing resort. And I was the only one that would react to it. So every time I flew in with the aircraft, um, they would know I was coming. And then... Things would change. My manager was too scared to to address anyone on that. So I was always seen as the bad guy trying to um, stand up for the law. And I chased two guys in in uh, their steel boat in my boat with with uh, my best man in my wedding, and um, they the wake of my boat tilted their boat and they both jumped out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. They were about three meters from the shore and soon scrambled, scrambled to dry land. And my friend and I watched as they ran away into the bush thinking nothing more of it. And the following day, the police arrived and accused us of drowning one of those poachers. And uh, we thought nothing of it. You know, we, we took the guys, the, the police to the, to the scene, explained everything that took place. The guy who was accusing us explained everything. Um, and from there, they took him with to um, the first police station, which was two hours away. It was it's a real remote area on Lake Ariba, and the, we were asked to report after three days when we left, and walked into the first police station, and uh, I just heard over the intercom, uh, officer commanding saying, "Have you arrested those two white men yet? This is clearly a murder case." And have you ever had your stomach jump into your throat? Not quite like that, though, I, no, I imagine. No, it, was, it was the beginning of hell. I mean, from there on, it became very political. There were 200 guys marched against the prison with the big banner, white skill, black, the must hang. Sorry, were you in prison because, at this time? Yeah, I was in the holding cell. So let's, so let's go back a step. So basically, they... This this was something that they manufactured, right? This, yes. this whole thing that this guy died, but actually, as far as you, by all accounts, well, but you and your your best man, at the, you know, at your wedding, what's his name? Spike. Spike. So yeah. you and Spike were like, "What the fuck is this?" Right. Yeah, so, exactly. and then of course now, so you hear this thing going off at the uh, over the intercom or whatever. Yeah. Where are you at this point? Are you in the police we're, station? Yeah, it was just a security fence with two buildings. Oh, is that all there is? So, so yeah, it's not it was like a pilot, a, okay. a pilot uh, police camp. Uh-huh. And then, so talk, talk talk us through the moments where this actually got really real for you. Was, did they come and arrest you, or did you like yeah, what was that whole process? At that time, when we walked in, when I heard that over the intercom, um, I just wanted to put a picture of the racism that 
you could feel in the country that time uh, against the farm invasions and everything. And I hated to to come across like this, but it, it's how it was. Um, and a guy walked out, uh, he's the officer commanding of that station, and he just said, who's Russell? Uh, my proper name's Russell. So I said, it's me, officer. He said, take your shoes off. I took my shoes off and who's Spike? And uh, Spike put his hand up. He said, remove your shoes. Put and then he told the guys, lock them up. <clears throat> and the hostile attitude, I mean, he almost spat his words at us. And we were like, I mean, we just finished a holiday. So we were in great spirits and everything, although we were accused of that. Um, we had done nothing. So, yeah. and no one expected anything like that. So it was a hell of a knock um, for us at that time. And then um, that afternoon, we were put in a two-meter square um, corrugated iron hut in the sun. And Binga at that area, the Binga is the area that we were in. It's 40 degrees plus always there. So we were melting away in there, and there's no windows or anything. And then we were called one at a time by the um, investigating officer, who was a young guy. Mm. Young black guy, very nice. And he said, I need you to write a statement. So I said, I've never written a statement. So Did they even tell what, you what they were arresting you for? Was no, they like, all knew. Okay, but did, were, were they, did they explain that to you? Were they like, hey, man, we're arresting you for the murder of this dude? Yeah. Or, but where was the body in this? Was there no, any, there was nobody. So, it was literally, so basically, they just said, listen, arrest this dude. You put that, the handcuffs on you, stuck you into a two-by-two yeah. two in 40-degree yeah. heat, and you were like – what the hell's just going on, right? So there goes my holiday. But it got worse. <laughs> I mean, that was the that was the beginning. That okay, was, that was nothing. So now they're asking you for a statement. Walk yeah, he asked that. me. I asked him, and when I mentioned that, he he just said, "Just write down," because I said it's a long story. You know, I'm going to tell him how we were fishing and come back and and what happened. And he said, "Just write. I deny all charges." So I wrote down. And he was very nice, and he he knew that we were innocent. I mean, he obviously could hear what was going on. Um, at the main police office. Um, and Spike was called and he did the same thing. And two days later, we were transferred to Binga Police Station um, because we were at Siakovo, which is a little pilot police station. And when we got there, that's when all the hostility started. I mean, the things they were saying to us was terrifying. And my lawyer was flown in and uh, he just, at that time when my lawyer actually flew in, um, I just want to give you a picture of the, that night. So in any holding cell or any prisons in Zim, there are no beds. You sleep on the floor. And in the holding cells, all the blankets are stiff from urine and vomit. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's filthy, stinking, feces all over the place. It's, it was the worst night of my life. I mean, all the prison time that went ahead wasn't as bad as being a prison that night, the holding cell. Um, and the mosquitoes were unbelievable. It was boiling hot and we were bitten like crazy and more and more drunks were thrown in at night because it was over the weekend. Mm. And we were just crammed in there, just packed like sardines. And then in the morning, I, it had been two days and we hadn't had a shower or anything. And I just said to them, please, I just need to have a bath. We were going to court. So there was a tap, a garden tap in the middle of the courtyard. They said, you can use that. So Spike and I went and stripped in front of the whole place, had a bath under the tap. It's very humiliating, but that's all we could do. Um, and then uh, we were put in handcuffs and leg irons, and it was the first time I was put in leg irons. 
And I'll never forget the humiliation when you are somebody in society that that people looked up to. I mean, I I was I was making donations to charities, old age homes, and orphanages. I was somebody in society, and then you made to feel like such a criminal when you've actually done nothing. Mm. And I never forget the humiliation and degrading feeling of that. I mean, I was completely broken. I just I couldn't believe what was going on. I got into the courthouse. And they, that was a magistrate there, so he didn't have the powers to do, give us bail pending on a murder charge. So we were held that night. <clears throat> um, we were held for a week there while my lawyer was preparing bail with the uh, judge in Bulawayo. And we got um, bail pending trial, and we were released. Um, and after that, you know, I saw my lawyer. We came back and did indications and, and everything. And the police were very understanding, um, but they were there. There were some police that were for you, and some that had agendas. And they clearly had agendas to um, to take this thing further, because my lawyer said it'll never get to court. There was no evidence at all. So back went and dived there. They said it's the procedure. All they found was a cap that had blown off my head two days before the incident, and they handed them a paddle. I mean, there's hundreds of pedals, broken pedals on the on the shore of Kariba, and said, "No, no, they beat him with us." So that was all that appeared in court. Those are the two exhibits. Um, and the more we try to explain that no one's died, the more they were going on about the hat and the pedal. And I'm talking about when they came to trial. Um, but the getting up to the trial, um, there were several. Uh, incidences that took place that irritated the whole progression of the of the case, where people were trying to help me um, hurry the thing up because I was international businessman traveling a lot to the states and that to get clients for my safari business. They were holding my passport and restricting me to the city, and then after a few months, a little further boundaries was restricting my whole business. I had a lot of guys working for me and. I needed my passport released. That's all, you know. And then I wanted my to get permission to travel to Vegas to the conventions there. And in order to hurry that process up, there were endless people offering to help me, and they just antagonized everything. And the AG's office uh, let me know that they were irritated when I was reporting once with Spike and they asked me if I knew a certain character who was one of the guys that were trying to help me and I of course denied it. So they made sure then that it got to trial. When it got to trial, unbeknown to me because my divorce, finalizing of my divorce was a, year, a month before that and I, I, it was a seven year divorce so it was, a, it was quite a process um, and the judge that presided over that, my advocate just attended. He said, carry on, there's you no need to worry about this. He was um, accusing me of not um, giving information, holding information from the court and so on. And the judgment against me was was against my credibility. The judge, the judgment from the, the judge in my divorce trial. Mm-hmm. A month later, unbeknown to me, the same judge, was, was actually doing your case. Yeah. So, and at the end of the trial, I mean, 
I won't bore you with the trial stuff because the uh, the interesting and and uh, you know blood turning stuff that is coming from the prison is what you really want to hear. But in the trial, they contradicted each other endlessly, and no evidence whatsoever. Um, and then at the end, the whole judgment, and in the judgment, the judgment said. Um, it is clear that his intention was not to kill the deceased, but I find him guilty of murder with intent. So it was like contradiction in, in that exact line in the judgment. And of course, I mean, I, I had every, you know, after trial, yeah. I was quite sure that, that there's nothing, we were given bail pending uh, judgment and it was seven months until judgment. And unfortunately, in that time, so we were happy with the with the trial. They had nothing on us. And in that time, the end of the trial ended November. In January, there was a, a judge that had been appointed by the president, and a forty-two-year-old lawyer in a town called Kwekwe. And he didn't climb the tissue system or anything. He was just appointed and apparently related to the president. And he had a beautiful ranch that I. I wanted my co-accused would know him, knew him quite well. And we wanted to start an adventure on that. So we went to see him and we, we, uh, started a joint venture between us, the judge and I. And I said to him, it was separate from all my other businesses. I said, is there any way you can get my passport released? So I said, yeah, no problem. So he went to the trial judge and three other judges. Why he didn't do it himself, I don't know, but they said he tried to bribe them. And he said they all wanted money. When I got to prison, I realized that all I, all the guys deal with the judges in prison, especially the armed robbers. And the next minute, um, the judge was thrown in prison. He wasn't impeached. Sorry, hang on. The judge was thrown in prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell, man? Yeah. Um, so the only thing you can assume is that those four judges went to the Minister of Justice, and he must have gone to the president. And the next minute, yeah, the judge was thrown in prison. I was still free then. So it was international news. If you check in January 2003, you will see the international news of Justice Benjamin Paradza incarcerated. And, and he was just thrown in. He, it was, it was bizarre. So he got bail pending trial and CNN, Sky News and BBC were all in some at that time reporting the land grab and all that stuff. So when he walked out, all the media were waiting for him, and he slandered the president, the minister of justice, and the whole system in every international paper. And my name was attached to every article. So then the war between the Because president, of his relationship with your case. Is that why? Was why, it, why, why was your name in all of that? Because he was trying to help me. Oh, so I get it now. With okay, the passport. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't exactly help so things. I was, yeah. <laughs> and I saw a very influential lawyer in Arari. I'm not going to say any names, but. Uh, he was Simon Mann's lawyer, for example, um, who's very politically connected. And I knew him socially. And he said to me, Russ, this thing's not looking good for you. So I said, why? He said, there's a war between the judge and the president. And unless you're guilty, they can't get the judge. And the president wants him. So I said, well, what do you think I should do? He said, get out of the country. And I said, there's no chance. It's like me saying to you, Matt, get out of South Africa and leave behind everything, your family, everything you've worked for, and you're guilty. So it wasn't an option for me at all. 
two days before judgment. It was called the judgment was two months after that. Another very close mate of mine, a uh, black guy, connected, phoned me, and he said, Russ, you're going to prison, but get out. And I said, there's no chance. And, you know, looking back on it, Matt, if knowing what I went through, just to give you an idea, I mean, in the, it was during the Zim dollar crash. So in the first six years, I watched 2,200 guys die, primarily from malnutrition. It, while you're in? Well, during my first, years, first six years in prison, I watched – so That's it incredible. was hell in there. It was it was horrific, and if you know when you go through everything that I went through, um, and you ask yourself, if you knew that was all coming, would you have run? And my answer to you is no. And I think that the lesson there, Matt, is is how valuable our word is and and our reputation, because um, I've got over that. And and sometimes there's a bigger picture. That you can't see at that time. I was a, I was a big, big, big fish in a little pool, but now I'm a little fish in a very, very big pool that can swim a hell of a lot further than mm. I was going, and and I feel now that I have a purpose. You know, then I was I was flying high, bulletproof. I thought, you know, I, my confidence in everything was high, and when you go in there, you suddenly realize that. That there's a whole lot more to life than, you know, it's all about money and me mm. and everything. And, and suddenly when I come out, I realize that that's not what life's about. Mm. Life's about making a difference and, and having a purpose. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm jumping a little bit, um, far ahead. I want to put you and take you through, if that's okay, because I'm just rambling on. Yeah, that's fine. I'm letting you ramble because I want to get the majority of the story down and then I'm going to interrogate it for kind okay. of, for kind of insights. Beautiful. So, um, well, first of all, like, holy shit. <laughs> like, you can say that like again. <laughs> how, how on earth do you deal with shit like that? I mean, it's funny that this is, this particular conversation is happening now because I've been actively writing my book. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's come through this whole thing where, you know, there's, there's the power of acceptance and there's, there's, Things will always go wrong in your life, right? Does, yeah. I don't give a fuck if you like this rich player yeah. in Zimbabwe, like the guy that you were, you're yeah. a different guy today. Um, or, you know, whether you're a billionaire, whether you're just a millionaire, like everybody has shit that goes on with yeah. them. You're getting divorced, people getting sick, whatever it is. So, but here's the thing. When things go wrong, you get two types of scenarios with that. The first one is... Um, you were responsible for that. It was directly in your control. Yeah. You were drunk... You hit that dude, yeah. and now you've been locked up. That's one thing, okay? Yeah. You know, and that and that sucks. That hurts. There's lots of regrets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's one scenario, and obviously that manifests in, in everybody's lives differently. Mm. The second type of scenario is where it happens beyond your control, yeah. and it wasn't your fault, mm-hmm. yet you're the one that's being taken to task. Yeah. And it, like that for me is what I battle with. Like, like it's just you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. If it's your fault, cool, I get it. Yeah. But when it's not your fault, and now yeah. suddenly you've lost your your reputation, yeah. your pride, your dignity, you, you've been subjected to seeing things that you shouldn't have. No one should see. Yeah. Um, you've been degraded. Mm-hmm. Like, and I want to get into the more the specifics, and you know, if you can yeah. share maybe yeah. one or two examples, no, just so well, people understand, like, yeah. holy shit, and maybe if they can just walk in your shoes for like a second, I think. Sure. People will grow as a result, yeah. um, but I mean, going back to my point, it's, it's it, this 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 kind of scenario is such a difficult thing for us to deal with. 
you know, your situation is obviously very different, hence why you're here. But like yeah. my audience is mainly entrepreneurs and business people and yeah. they're also going through this pain. Yeah. But the lesson here, it's like there's power and acceptance. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. do, let me ask you this. Do you hold any grudges against the people that, you know, subjected you to this whole thing? Nothing at all. Why? And let me come to that. Okay, cool. Okay, because it, 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 it's in the lessons that I learned from it. Okay, cool. So if I can go through with you, Matt, um, the the hardships just for 10 minutes. Let's do it. I'm all about the hardships. Okay. Let's go. Okay. So let's go back to prison, though. Can, do you want to go yeah. there? Do you wanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a good place to start? Yeah. Okay. Um, the first thing you mentioned about being unfair, um, the thing that was made it worse, Matt, is I was trying to stand up for the law. I was chasing poachers. Mm. So when you're trying to do the right thing, and then you end up in prison. It's a whole lot worse than, you know, just making a mistake. No good deed goes unpunished, right? I just wanted right? to mention that, yeah. But let me give you an idea, Matt, of my first day in prison. Cool, let's do it. Okay. So when you get there, when you arrive, the first thing they make you do is strip naked. So when you walk into a prison in, in where I was, and it didn't happen to everybody. It happened to quite a few of us. You walk in with nothing. And when you, so you escorted in there, stark naked. There were a thousand guys in there. I was the only white guy. And can you just imagine for a second yourself in that position? It was unbelievably terrifying. And I've, I've been through some tough times, but that for me was a terrifying moment in my life. And then you crouch down in front of four guards and there's a thousand guys all around you. And they just question you for like 15 minutes. Where you're from, your crime, your family, your business. It goes on and on. Did they know you like any of these? If you no, were... but it was headlines in the paper. Blue businessman gets mm. 15 years. So it was a big story. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And then I'm escorted up to my cell. The cell was 15 meters long by three meters wide. Mm-hmm. We were 78 guys. What? So everybody got 33 centimeters of space marked out on the walls in chalk. That was your space. Holy you were packed like sardines. And, and I have a photo here in the no, book. Of, 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 what page is it? It's right in the beginning. Oh, it's in the beginning. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. That's how we slept. Hang on, let me get this up for the camera. (laughs) That's how we slept. We were packed like sardines, with legs all crossing over in the middle, because it was only three meters wide. And you all faced the same direction. 
when you turned over, you all turned over together. It was unbelievable. And oh guys wanted to use the toilet at night. Couldn't help but trample you all the way to the toilet. Um, and then, Matt, the, we only had one set of clothing allowed at any one time. So uh, that was after six Every six months, you got a change of clothing. So you had to wash your clothes, and there were no basins or taps in the cells, as you can see there. It's just the toilet in the corner. So you had to wash your clothes in the cell toilets at night wearing a blanket, then hang them on the walls with smuggled book staples to dry by the next morning. Now, you talk about humiliation. You have no idea what it feels like in front of all these guys having to wash your clothes in the toilet they've been using. No way, man. No, no, it was hectic. The three or four of you would get together and block the toilet to allow the toilet bowl to fill up when attempting to flush because one garment had to be used to block the toilet. And then you, you wash, you take it in turns. So like four of you get together and you've got eight pieces of clothing. One blocks the toilet, fill it up, and then you wash the clothes on the cement block surrounding the toilet bowl and dipping them in and out as you wash. And then you hang them on the walls. You know, when you, when you, when the wall is cast, when, when you cast the wall, you get little air bubbles in the wall from the screens. They, you, you hang the, the clothes on there with smuggled book staples. So you hook the staple in there and then you hook it on your clothes. Um, and then Matt, the, the other thing that I really battled with was the lice. Lice. Yeah. Thousands of them that never ever went away. They would crawl and bite day and night. Now you've been bitten by mosquitoes. I fucking hate mosquitoes. <laughs> Why do they exist? So imagine mosquitoes in your clothes, in your blankets, in your hair, everywhere. No. That crawl and bite day and night, year after draining year. I'm not doing it, dude. No, and it eats away at you <laughs> on every level. You have no idea. That's incredible, man. So, and I think if I had to point out one of the things that I, the thing that were, that hammered me the most were the mosquitoes, were the, the lice. There were mosquitoes in there too, but they were nothing. The lice were, they left itchy, weeping blisters. And they itched for days. No, they were hectic. And they, and nothing was ever done about them. It was like, that's your story. So, so, so hang on. So how long were you in that situation, this one here? I was in one year like that. One year? Yeah. And then and I was moved to Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison for the judge's trial. His tribunal. Okay, so why yeah. were you now being asked to go back there? Now taken to Arari. Okay. To Chikarubi Max. Yeah. To carry on my sentence there because they wanted me as a witness for uh, that trial. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. Okay. Did so you I actually meet the judge in prison? Did you? Sorry? Did you meet the judge in prison? No, he Didn't never. Because that would have been hilariously funny. <laughs> <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was, uh, he was sentenced, he was uh, convicted uh, after three years. And then he absconded to New Zealand. And he's still there. He's a, he's a, a barrister there on the bar of the um, Supreme Court. So, he, you know, he, he did very well. But he was a professor at the Victoria <laughs> University for quite a while. How does that even happen? Yeah. It's beyond me. And then in Chikarubi, Matt, just to give you a little more on the, on the horrors. Small volume for him, please. Um, in 2005... Harari City ran out of water. So for three years, while in Chikiribi Maximum Security Prison, every prisoner was allocated one plastic cup of water a day, one cup of dirty orange city runoff water from a nearby dam carried by farm prisoners. That was to drink, clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything for three years. That was hard. 
Guys didn't bath for nine months. It was unbelievable. So I've been through it. I watched over 2,200 guys die, primarily from no food. During the Zim Dollar crash, there was no food outside of prison, never mind in there. So, so prisoners. Sorry, sorry to ask you, mate, but when, when you say that you watched this, so were they these people in your cell and they did, did you, Not 2,200 died in my cell. They died in the prisons I was in. No, no, Many mean, yeah. died beside me. Okay. And in my cell. So and let me like, tell you, Matt, when you're watching a guy who's got diarrhea, going to the toilet all night, and eventually dying by your feet, you you like experiencing his death over hours. It's Jesus, a horrible thing. And these are the guys that, I mean, you're all family in there. You look after each other. So it was tough to deal with, eh? big time. And, and it wasn't one or two. It was hundreds. It was horrible. Eh? Yeah. What are the guards? I mean, what the hell are the guards? I mean, do they not care? Are they like… Matt, the, the you know, like prison little. system in Zim, <clears throat> first of all, is, uh, is run by war vets and they called them the, the green bombers who were trained to take over the farms. Uh-huh. So it's all based around violence. The beatings in the prison were unbelievable. The handcuffs behind your back, you put in leg irons and stuck, put on your stomach, and they beat you under the feet with one meter long rubber battens. Like sometimes a hundred under each foot. They broke leg bones, they broke the feet bones. It was horrific. So if you stepped to the line, that was basically that. And yeah. Then you, you wouldn't but, be walking for. <laughs> you know, Matt, the. And I know beatings go on in every prison in, in Africa. It's mm. not like this doesn't happen. Don't believe that. Um, but there's some people in there that you never want to see out of prison. Never. Um, and there are a lot of innocent people in there. Unfortunately, they're all mixed. So you end up, uh, they call it the college, because there's no entertainment whatsoever in a prison in Zim. There's no TVs or radios or anything. There's just, and you're locked up for 20 hours a day. So, and there's 78 of you in the cell. And in Chikaribi, there were 46 of us. So there's just endless stories from notorious armed robbers about how to break into different houses, different cars, where to buy guns, where to sell merchandise. So they're training you and taking you through processes of, of illegal stuff. Mm-hmm. So you leave there beaten, angry, bitter, revengeful, educated criminals. And that's what's happening. Mm. And you know, when I, I told you about that one lesson of, of – because um, I want to talk about the crime as well, um, where a, person, a person's intellectual um, personality and character is formed before they're five years old. 85% of that – Character and personality, intellectual character and personality is formed before they're five years old. So all of the all of the crime and hatred and stuff today is mostly by people that were born after Zimbabwe's independence or independence here. And that's all from being fed before they're five years old. So that's the main thing that I would like taken from this is look after those kids up to five years old. Don't put them into the violence situation in all these shanty towns you see all over here. Can you imagine what's going on in there, living on top of each other and all the crime and everything? I've spoken to some of the Zimbabwean um, fuel station guys and that about what goes on in there. It's horrific. And that's where we, we need to address things. If you're going to fix the crime in, in Africa, fix it there with those kids. 
I want to come back to that in a second. Um, so going back to the to the cells, though, I mean, if if that's kind of like what um, what's being discussed, which is like a PhD in in how to become a criminal <laughs> in the college, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, but I mean, from a from a human to human perspective, I mean, what kind of bonds did did you form there? If if I mean, there must have been. I mean, yeah, I would yeah. say that you kind of forgive it. I forget you kind of forget the fact that the guy in the cell next to you is different to you because you like you're in this thing together. Do you know yeah, what I mean? You become familiar. You yeah. get very close to the guys when you go through um, hardships like that. You form friendships forever. Are you still friends with um, with quite a few of them now? Lots of them, guards included. Really? Yeah, there were some guards that were very good to us. Eh? Really? And some of those prisoners, they were they were God sent. Eh? Mm. They yeah, they were they were great guys. So, what did you most learn about? yourself during that period before i mean we'll get into like the the details of how you eventually got out of prison but i mean what were you saying to yourself like what was your inner dialogue because it's kind of like saying you you want to like i would then i think after like the first 24 hours that have been i should have fucking got on that plane and got out of here (laughs) do you know what i mean like genuinely why why do it i mean for me it's like okay like i I, like i'm not judging your decision I'm, i'm trying to role play and say well if i was in that situation what would i've done i would have been okay. fuck your pride <laughs> do you know what i mean like so, there's fun, some some battles you like for me it's just like i fight the battles that i think i can win yeah you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. It's, it's enough dude like yeah. you've lost so much just yeah. in the initial few weeks mm. and then to 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 basically then make the decision to say well actually you know what i'm in this for the full hook because of like you know, what was that? Was that pride? Was it, what was it? Was it reputation? Like, what was your reasoning to go, actually, you know what? I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to take the heat despite mm. the fact that I'm innocent, despite the fact that the system is using me mm. to, for other gains, other people are benefiting and using your story as a political device, essentially. Yeah. Um, why, why did you make that decision? What, what made you go, fuck that? I'm actually going to stay here. Okay. So the first thing when you go in there, you say, why me? And what did I ever do to deserve this? I mean, you start asking these questions, and then I thought, well, maybe I've been put there to be protected. And there's a lot of during the land invasion and the chaos, there's guys getting killed there and everything. And and I was involved with some high-powered guys in different businesses, and I always lived on the edge. So you know, you know doing not illegal stuff, but things on the edge with finance and and all kinds of stuff. And then I thought, well. Um, Maybe I've been put here for a purpose. You know, I always told my kids everything happens for a reason. And now I had to walk my talk. So I had to, and there's no way to get through there if you, unless you believe that, Matt. Um, so I had to just accept that there's, there's a reason for this. But I think the biggest uh, reason for me getting through there mentally was hope. So I always had hope. I was always going home. And if someone had said to me in year two that you're going home in year five, I would have said never. Hmm. I'm going home now, now. Three months I could live with. After that, it was too painful. And, and there's a correlation between your brain and your stomach. So if you think about um, going home further than three months, it hurts in your stomach. It's like thinking of my fiancé with another guy. It, hmm. So I just blocked that out. And I'd block going you, – you completely block it out. You have this ability in forgiveness too – to cut out all of those horrors. Um, and when I think back on, on the whole thing, it's like a life that wasn't really there. It, it was just a vague part of my life. You compartmentalize it. Yeah, you okay. can sever the strings to it. You really can. Um, and then, so, so hope was always there. Um, and then 
the bitterness, anger, revenge, anger, you know, just, I was angry. Eh? And, and, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I planned a lot of things for each and every one of them. And let me tell you, I was, I was very It's bitter. funny how your mind likes to, to do that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And I a lot of time a, to plan. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose I was actually quite creative. It was like, okay, well, I've got nothing else to do. I'm going to plan the demise of this motherfucker and this guy and this guy and this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I tell you, Matt, um, I was walking in the exercise yard um, and, I, and I looked up and I said to myself, Lord, take care of them and let me get through this road that's been put in front of me. I remember the exact words. And once I'd accepted that and actually physically in my mind just pushed the blame and I said to myself, they'll get what they deserve. Life's a circle and what goes around comes around. And once I'd accepted that, and if you're not spiritual, it's about pushing aside things you have no control over and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, and once I'd accepted that and just said, listen, I, you know, these guys have forgotten about me long ago. So just leave it. Just let the Lord take care of that and let me get through this. My whole life in prison changed after that. It was amazing and it was like like a switch. It was just like, whew, I'll let that go. Mm. And so I think um, one of the, the biggest lessons I learned in prison was true forgiveness. And, and I now know what Nelson Mandela meant by forgiveness. Because if you don't forgive, you're still imprisoning yourself. Mm. You've got to let it go. doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. For you, it's the right decision. Where do you and f- they carry it, not you. Mm. Yeah. Where do you find – there's a few things I want to explore here. So, And there's so many great dichotomies between – I obviously can't really compare them, but I mean I'm, I'm leaping here <laughs> uh, You know, if, in terms of entrepreneurship. But I mean like oftentimes um, – in fact, I was writing about – I wrote this exact line yesterday in the book. I was saying like so your breakdowns are oftentimes your breakthroughs. Um, and But that doesn't feel that way. Yeah. You know, um, there's that saying, or let me ask you this. Do you agree with the saying that life is always happening for you, not to you? Would you agree with that? I mean, looking at your story? No, for me. Yeah, exactly. And you know why, Matt? If I look at the big picture now, like I explained, I was going nowhere in a little pool. I didn't know then. But when I look at the whole thing now, this is part of the whole plan for my life. Because now I have a story that they wanted all over the world. So... I'm making a difference to you, and, and it's a whole lot bigger picture than being a big fish in a little pool. Where do you so, find the capacity for hope, though? Where did that come from? I mean, I know it's a kind of like, it seems like a pretty obvious question, like, well, you know, we're in a hopeless situation, well, you've got hope, you know what I mean? Okay. But, 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 but it, it was fucking hopeless, do you know what I mean? Like, it was much more than three months. So, like, where did you find that capacity to, one, accept the situation because… Yeah. You know, walk us through like your thinking process because okay. I find this. I totally agree with you. I think there's so much power in that. Like, yeah. except this is the reality mm. of my life. This is the reality of my business. This is what I. This is what I've lost as a consequence of this thing. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. you're either going to wrestle with that your whole life and yeah. carry this monkey around, which is yeah. what a lot of us do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, there's yeah, no, yeah. and I agree with you. Like, if you're stuck in, that's where depression starts because you're living in the past. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and so if you're living in the future, it's anxiety, and that's what you were probably going through in the beginning stages, less so in year four, <laughs> yeah. or whatever it was. But peace is in the present. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. So uh, just getting onto that, the past was too painful, and the future full full of unkept promises. They promised me I was going home. They had endless plans of people coming to get me out, and just year after year, it was the same thing. So you learn to live in the moment, and to try and get through every day, you. you you can't think of anything else because you've got – it's a survival. I mean, you've got to get through it. And then 
on the hope side, Matt, you can feel yourself, counsel yourself on what to think. Because when you think of something that hurts, you block it out. Are you with me? Yeah, I'm with you. Because you're I in so much pain anyway. If I, yeah, it was, there was no other option. Yeah. So, so I'm it would drive to, you insane otherwise. Yeah. Right. So, so if I thought about staying for five years, that was far too painful. Yeah. The, the only way to make me feel good was that I was going home. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. And any information from anyone about going home, I just took it. Mm-hmm. I'm going home, definitely. And, I, and whether the years came and went didn't matter. I was still going home. Talk to me about belief. <clears throat> yeah. Where, uh, like, this is, I mean, where does one culture, how does one, knowing what you know now yeah. and having had the experience that you've had, how does one cultivate belief in oneself? Because there's, you know, there's this whole thing like faith is the ability to continue or to take action despite not having any proof or evidence. That's what faith is. That's what yeah. you had to yeah. have. Yeah. It was hope, faith, acceptance of the situation, right? Yeah. Um, but belief is a big deal in building businesses, becoming a professional athlete, writing a book, yeah. you know, being yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> being each and every one of us, you know, everybody listening to us right now. So. Yeah. What have you learned about culturing uh, or fostering belief in oneself or that some eventuality or outcome will manifest at some point, despite the fact that there is no evidence to suggest okay. that that's going to come yeah. through? Okay, Matt, the, the, the two things that strike me when, when you say that, the first is resilience. So, and, and so many people have asked me, how did you get through there? Um, and, I'll, and I'll get to that one. But the other one is tenacity, where I've always wanted to be the best at whatever I did. And I mean, I bought a 40,000 acre ranch. Well, I didn't have the money, but I knew I would find the money and I, and I made the money to buy it with the, the cattle that they turned in 20 head. So it's just taking risks and putting the boat in the water and then driving it, no matter what it took and how long you had to work every day, you can make it work. So I think it's all in your build up. If you are ambitious and you have enough drive and I, and I can see you have, nothing can hold you back. If you, if you want to do something, do it. And I remember my national rugby coach, I, I said to him, um, Lou, I, I want to I want to buy a house and then I want to do this and that. I've forgotten everything I had. But the papers are saying this and that. And I read in the news and he said, forget about the news and newspapers. If you want to do something, go and do it. And it was the best advice. I was only like 23 or something. And I never forgot that. And Lou Corby was his name, if he wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> are you listening to this, millennials? <laughs> can I just get a round of applause for Rusty? That's fucking incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so where do you want to, this is your story. Um, yeah. Where do we go from here? So you're dealing with this whole thing and, you know, dealing with this, this nightmare essentially that you have to live every day. Mm. Um, and you're growing yeah. also. Yeah. And you're becoming this person that's sort of activating one's values of self. Yeah. And deactivating one's values of ego, you know, yeah. and material yeah. things. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, I find like I'm going through this process myself, actually. Okay. You know, I'm turning fucking 40 this year. You know what I mean? It's crazy. <laughs> Why wasn't yeah. I doing, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a natural progression. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that, yeah. that we all go through, we just start to realize actually that's bullshit. Or you buy the 40,000 acre ranch and you're actually like, well, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I'm still, mm. I'm still unhappy potentially or whatever the case is. Mm. I'm not saying you were saying, you know, most people, when they're quiet it's not like when you're young you chase money you chase material things you chase the nice car or whatever and then you get those things and you realize actually well that dream sucks <laughs> you know and it doesn't make me happy so actually then what's it all about yeah and so this the sad part of it is you, you get the individual who doesn't get there 
Yeah. They don't get the fancy car and the, you know, the sports mm -hmm. model wife or whatever the case is. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And so they always keep going, trying to achieve that thing. And then you get like, I've made money and I've lost money and I've made, built, sold yeah. businesses and lost businesses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And so through that process, you start to act, you realize actually, well, what makes you tick and what actually does make you happy. So, yeah. so for me, there's that jump that eventually you, you have to take. Because mm. for me, it's like, if you continually are driven by the needs of the ego, you will always be unhappy. Mm. You may lie to yourself and bullshit yourself and maybe do a line here and maybe another line there, another bottle of that there, and maybe, mm. you know, bang that check over there, whatever whatever the case is to yeah. get you to feel like you're happy, but it's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. You lying to yourself, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so eventually you have to consider the alternatives and that's kind of what you were forced to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think you didn't have the choice. Yeah. Maybe you did. Did you have the, did you feel like you had the choice? Do you feel like, was that choice like that, you will do this thing now? Or like how, what is, what was the choice there for you? I'll, I'll tell you what comes to mind when you say that. When I went into prison, I was running five companies of my own, um, which is the mission. And I remember the first day lying on that concrete floor with 33 centimeters of space. And I said to myself, shit, this is not too bad. They can do whatever they want. The pressure, the release of the pressure that I was carrying was far outweighing than the concrete floor. And I said to myself that night right there, I will never get into that position again. Because we take on too much and nothing ever makes you happy. Just what you're saying. Doesn't matter what a flash car, then you want a flashier one. So we need to be grateful, which is a huge lesson I learned, in what we have, instead of being wanting more and more and more. So getting onto what you said there, gratitude was a massive lesson for me. And when you're lying in a cell with 78 other people, and not even the breath you take is your own, gratitude suddenly has a different meaning altogether. And uh, and I'd like people to to remember that you know if you every morning can just wake up and say thank you for this this and this and this today, mm. and you have a list, you'll have a different mindset. So what was your list when I went to prison? Mm, yeah, what were you saying? Okay, I'm going to wake up today. I'm grateful. What were you saying? I'm great. What were you grateful for? Just then? what I've achieved, eh? and Matt. There's so many people that <clears throat> that uh, didn't have the opportunities I had. So yeah, I went to. When I was 26, I think it was, I went to the bank manager there and I had a, a written contract from a concession and I said, I needed this, this and this, this is how much money I'll bring in and gave her the plan. And I didn't go to Vasily or anything like that. It was just a plan out of my head on the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And she believed in me and saw my work ethic to what I'd done over the few years and it wasn't much and gave me 300,000 US dollars. And from there, I went. And when you've got that break, and I just thank God for those breaks in my life and, and my beautiful children, and then having, having had the upbringing that I had. I mean, you know, there's no PlayStations and all that junk, and there's no crime and stuff. We had an incredible upbringing. And, and then if I look back on how the kids are brought up today and how I was brought up, all the opportunities, um, I had 11 boats, two houseboats, nine cars. I mean, I was living the life. Mm. That, and you've got to be grateful for that. It doesn't matter if you've lost it all. Mm. I was fortunate to have had it and lived it. And that's fine for me. I'm on a different life now. And different things make me happy now. And I've learned that to let them make me happy. I was never happy then. I couldn't buy enough. I couldn't, you know, 
there was never enough. It was just mm. more and more and more. And now it's not, it's not about me and money and my empire and everything. It's about making a difference. 100%. So let's stick with happiness and I want to talk to you about kids. Okay. Um, was there a day, and it's going to fucking irritate you, this question, because yeah, yeah. it would <laughs> irritate me. Yeah. But, but was there a day, yeah. seriously, I'm yeah. interested to know, was there a day at any point where you said to yourself, actually, you know what, I'm happy here? In prison? Mm. No. Okay. Fuck no. <laughs> Good. But then what did you learn about happiness? What have you, you learned learn, about You learn to find um, – so some of the other lessons I learned in there is to be able to find positives in all the negatives going on around you. It brought hope. You've got to look for – that. thank goodness, thank God I'm not suffering like he is. Or I don't – you know, he doesn't get visitors and, and so forth. There, there are a lot of things you can pull out of a negative and just be grateful for not being in that position. And then to f- be able to find – Happiness and even the smallest things that happen in prison but um, that's what I was trying to get kept to. me healthy. And, and you know, yeah. you'd say to me, well, how do you find happiness in a prison? And I'll just give you an example. So there, there was that's a, the greatest challenge of all, right? Because, yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, I think just sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, that's what I was trying to get to. Because when everything else is, you have to find some form of solitude somewhere. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, you yeah. wouldn't, you would, you would, you would literally die from some physiological effect from this incredible weight of depression. Negative, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And negativity and yeah. you would fucking die because yeah. your brain can kill you. Yeah. You know exactly. what I mean? And it's like, think about it. So you would have to find a place that you would go to that would be your solitude, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're like. So you were saying, okay, so so you're around, yeah. <clears throat> some of the, an example of finding happiness, you know, when you walk into a crowd or into a bar or uh, a stadium or anything, you're attracted to someone that's funny, and he's a character. It's no different in prison. So you go in there, you've got a thousand guys, and you can see one guy's always laughing and acting around and joking. And so you, you're attracted to that. And, and there was this guy, Munya. Munya Razi is his name. We used to call him Munya. Short, big chest, stocky, skinny little arms and legs. And he was a goalkeeper for the, for the soccer there to play on this bare ground. And uh, Munya was one of those characters. So he could or Big eyes like, and he could roll his eyes and keeping his head still. He was like a chameleon, and he big, loud voice. He's the funny guy, and he was just always joking. And he could play. We had this battered old three-string guitar, and he would play this thing and sing. And I love country music. And old Munya would play me. I had to pay him three cigarettes, otherwise he wouldn't sing. I was playing cigarettes, <laughs> and he'd play. <laughs> and Munya and I became good mates. So, and he was always cocking around. So we chase each other all over the place and just practical jokes, you know. So, And I lo- I've always been a bit of a fitness freak. So when I was in prison, I, I used to train and uh, use blankets and water bottles. And Munya used to get jealous of my time with other prisoners. So he used to irritate me when I was trying to exercise. So one day I was lying on some – because when you walk into a cell, just to give you an idea, there's no – Beds, tables, chairs, cupboards, nothing. It's just rows of filthy folded blankets and hundreds of well-used water bottles on bare concrete floors. That's it, like a like a newly built hotel with no furniture. That's what a prison looks like. And um, <clears throat> when you would uh, – and the blankets, they you got your 33 centimeters of space and, and you fold you, – you got three blankets and you put them all in – you fold them all into that line and then you roll them tightly and there's a way that they unpeel and they – Curl it around to hold them together like a rolled beef. And they're piled along the walls. 
the 30, 70 yard guys. And Munya would take some of these and he would throw them at me when I'm exercising and run out and laugh like hell, you know. So, <laughs> so one day I was exercising and I was waiting. And so I pushed the dagger and one hit me and I dropped it. Wait, I grabbed a bundle that was waiting. And as he, we were exercising at the other end of the, of the cell. And as he ran past the toilet, I led him by two meters and clapped him on the head. He went straight into the toilet and we just <laughs> rolled with laughter. We were crying with laughter. And I just thought, uh, those are the things that keep you going in there. You, mm. you couldn't think. You had to find your own happiness. You had to make mm. you know, jokes and stuff. And, you know, often we used to say, now uh, the guys that were always cocking around, that we'd see guys coming in, you know, there's new intakes all the time as guys are dying and, and being transferred. And we'd say, that guy's not going to make it. And within three months, he was gone. So you could actually and see. From negativity. Really? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people ask me how I got through there mentally. I had this fat, the gorgeous fantasy girlfriend named Cherie. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to fly all over the world in our private jet and catch Marlon in Mexico and help those in need financially. And I created this beautiful world I could go into to get away from it all. Because you spend mm. hours and hours thinking. You know, you say, what do you do all that time? You think. Mm. So you fantasize. You go into this beautiful world that made you feel good. So I lived there. I didn't. I didn't, and even though it's, it's, it's not real, mm. it makes you feel good. And that worked for me. And a lot of people have different ways of getting through stuff like that. But that, for me, worked. But when I was released, I wanted to know scientifically how the mind copes with those situations. So I did some research on it with Dr. Caroline Leaf, who's a great friend of, of Sandra, my partner. And every time we think, see, and feel, our mind generates a signal that affects every cell in our bodies. We have between 75 and 100 trillion cells. Thinking is 98% of that signal. So what you think actually affects every cell in your body and brain physically. And <clears throat> research shows that between 75 and 95% of illnesses come from our thought life. Mm-hmm. We have about 30,000 thoughts a day. So what you think actually our thoughts play a massive role in diseases in our bodies. Mm. But by the same token, it can be just the opposite. When you're thinking correct thoughts, you generate very healthy signals that affect your blood chemistry and build more healthy cells. So our thoughts create who we are, physically. And it was my happy thought life, even though it had to be a fantasy, that kept me healthy and sane in there. And that's the power of positive thinking, Matt. And people need to, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in prison or in Las Vegas, it's still just life. It's what you make of it, no matter where you are. What do you say to people who say positive thinking doesn't work? They don't know what they're talking about. Go to prison for a while. <laughs> that is the end of that subject. <laughs> It'll be like the short world's shortest book. You'll be like, does positive thinking work? An idiot's guide, page one. Go to prison. <laughs> and find out, biatch. <laughs> That's it. Because I've, yeah, I mean, what was that ridiculous movie? It probably just The Secret. Who have you watched that? Did you ever watch that shit? And there was a, th- yeah, I mean, the movie was bullshit, but I mean, there was a, there was a thing in there, but it was, it actually was this, this, they took water yeah, and they had three bottles and they put a label on like each one. One was like love, one was uh, gratitude and the other one was like hate or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they had various people come into the room and then hold the bottle with the label love on it and think thoughts of love. And they did yeah. that for gratitude and then they did that for for um, anger, hate, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then 
they also had a monk come in and like bless the the, the good bottles. Obviously, not the the hate one. You probably wouldn't yeah. dig it that much. Yeah. <laughs> Be hateful, monk. <laughs> um, and uh, and anyway, and then they put the water under a microscope so they could analyze the structure of the yeah. actual water molecules. Yeah. And then they showed it, and this was probably the only thing that was actually true in the whole thing, you know. Or maybe, I don't know, it's all subjective stuff, right? Pushing an agenda. But but this was actually a thing, and I'm sure you can Google it now. But if you look at the structure of the water molecules, yeah. um, how they change and how beautiful love the water molecule is versus the one that's hate. I've seen it. Have you seen that shit? Yeah, I've looked and at then, it all. And then you say to yourself, yeah, which is what you're saying, right? Which yeah. is like, well, what's the human body made of? Yeah. It's water. Like yeah, 90, yeah, yeah, 90 whatever it is, 98% yeah. water, something crazy like that. So actually, yeah, your, your thoughts do actually can affect matter they do. in your body. And, and what then, you say. And what you say. Yeah. So it's almost like it's self-evident. You know what I mean? Like if, if, you're, if you're thinking a certain thing, your behavior and your actions will follow through on that certain thing. Yeah. Right? So therefore, your thoughts actually do affect your reality, but it's just not in the case necessarily of what, you know, again, quantum physics will probably prove us all wrong at some point. You know what I mean? Like the law <laughs> of attraction or what have you. Yeah. But, it's, but I mean, and there's some merit to that. Who fucking knows, right? I'm just saying no one has the answer. So you can't subscribe to one narrative completely yeah, Do you know yeah, what I yeah. mean you have to yeah. say well in some instances like we all have that weird thing where you know like the, you'll think of, like I'll be thinking about Rusty next week and then you'll phone me yeah. you know what I'm saying and like, yeah. we haven't but whatever and you're like, I haven't spoken to this person for months yeah. and it's like oh it's so funny I was just, th- I was just thinking about you I've yeah. had that right <laughs> everyone here has had that right but why is that how is that possible Do but you know affirmations I mean? work man yeah you say things over and over and they they definitely work. I did, did it in prison. What were, what kind of affirmations were you saying every, to yourself? Every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Mm. Yeah, because I suffered badly from allergies in prison and oh, chest really? infections, yeah. Maybe. And they definitely, definitely work. Um, and I read about it as well. That's how I started doing it. Mm. But did so? Were you? Were you, did you have access to any any information? Reading material, yeah. From did you? visitors when oh, they, you they did? brought you? Yeah. So you were allowed visitors and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so I read all those books from John okay. Keogh and Mind's Power and everything, and they work. Yeah. Eh? yeah. Tell me something. Um, your kids, how old were they when this they were all eighteen went and sixteen when it started? Yeah. Okay. So they were fully aware of what the hell was going on. Yeah. Right? Just and to then, let an audience know, I was in prison for ten years exactly to the day. Seriously. Yeah. So walk us through the events that got you out. Like how did how why was it ten? I mean, served the fir- ten years. So when you okay. when you're sentenced to fifteen years, the prison will take one third off, and if you misbehave or run away and they catch you and whatever, they can put the other third on. So it's just an incentive all over the world. That's what it's like. Mm. So I served the full ten years, but in the back of my mind, like Simon Mann, because the government doesn't have to if they don't want to, Simon had to serve his full seven years. Yeah, so right up until you walk out, you're not sure if you're going to actually walk out there because they say it's your earliest date of release, your EDR. So yeah, my EDR was there, and they try to put another 60 days on for a cell phone misdemeanor. But, yeah, they hadn't… Uh, <laughs> what were you doing? Yeah, well, <laughs> to, I didn't tell you this, Matt, but uh, when I went to… Because you classified in, in prison. Um, so you get uh, condemned a section which is uh, death row, yeah. then D-class conditions, those who are serving five and a half years or more, then C-class, between two and a half and five years to go, and they move to a medium security prison, so you're not in maximum security. So you get a lot more freedom to walk around 16 hours a day, uh, you know, locked up instead of 20 hours a day. And then 
they work in workshops. So they have tailors and electricians and everything. They make all the clothes for the prison and stuff. And then uh, between six months and two and a half years is B class. Those are the guys that go and work on the farms. Mm. And you see them on the streets sometimes with their white kit cleaning on the grass and that. And then less than six months, if you're over 60, is an A-class. And you uh, you can walk between prisons. Let's say if you've got a prison complex that has women's section, maximum, medium, and farm prison, those guys can walk and they're only locked up at seven. But they're all old and they've been in prison a long time normally. Mm. And then you get a farm prison. Mm. A farm prison is it's called an open prison, but not a farm prison, open prison. That's a carefully selected group of about 100 prisoners that run a farm for the prison service, all on trust. So there's no bars or fences or anything. And my last two years, I qualified for that, which was a massive bonus. So I slept in a bed, I drove the tractor and repaired all the balls and everything. So that was such a godsend for me. Yeah. yeah. But um, <clears throat> getting back to when I was in medium security prison, um, the security is a whole lot less. So when my sister was feeding me, just to get that quickly out the way, I'm sorry, but um, no, sir, get out. in June 2006, because the death rate was so high from malnutrition and disease, the prison headquarters started allowing relatives to deliver food to their loved ones daily. <laughs> so my darling sister, Lynn, sold her claypot business and gave up her career just to feed me for four years. Now that takes a very special person. And... Uh, so when she was feeding me... Hold on, ring that bell. <laughs> that one's for Lynn. Well done. Well done, Lynn. Rock star. Um, no, she's unbelievable. I'm very, very close to her. And then when we went to the medium security prison, uh, when I went, the guards would then, because security is a lot lower and you don't have to go through 20 gates to come and visit, they would say to her, you know, does your brother not need uh, a phone or iPod or anything? And then they, she would pay them and, and they would deliver it to me. So... She came to see me and she said, between the grill, one day she said, do you want an iPod? So I said, well, what's an iPod? <laughs> so she said, it's a thing that plays music. So I said, well, how big is it? So she indicated this small flat thing. So I said, well, how many songs does it play? She said, oh, about a thousand. I said, no ways. So where do you put all this DVDs, <laughs> CDs? I had no idea. I never knew what an iPod was. It's incredible. So I said, yeah, oh, shit. So the next day under the cell, it came the iPod and this bloody headphones. And I'll tell you, you now every song has a memory, and that little thing brought so much pleasure, I have no idea. Uh-huh. And then I would send, she, she sent two, and, and I'd have a guard charge the one, and then stop <laughs> the whole time, he'd listen and charge anyway. So the next thing, we had a cell phone sneaked in too. That was this exciting, risky business that you couldn't dream of in a maximum security. And everything was going perfectly for a few months, and then an envious prisoner reported me. And after an unexpected search, unbelievably, through some quick maneuvering with on-site guards, Nothing was discovered, but I was sent to solitary confinement anyway for two years. I'm sorry? Solitary confinement for two years. That was hell. Oh, my God. But believe it or not, after having that precious little link to the outside world, I had to get my phone back, and I did, (laughs) (laughs) which made a huge difference. So you were in solitary confinement with a phone? For two years, yeah. (laughs) It was hell. Like your phone bill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, I had mates that were paying the phone bills and the officers charging the batteries in there. I mean, so who are you phoning? So Everyone I could. All my mates, it was constant. I had plenty of girlfriends on the line as well. And then we, did you have to be like, sir? <laughs> <laughs> what, was your, what was your make-believe girlfriend? 
What was the, the make believe one? What was her name? Sandy. Oh, Cherie. Cherie. Yeah. Okay. So Sorry how was Cherie? Did you phone her a couple times? Cherie, no. <laughs> she wouldn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't take your calls. <laughs> yeah. So that's insane. So like yeah. how many hours a day were you on the phone? Well, I was, you're only well, locked in solitary for 16 hours. Okay. So you're still allowed out for the eight hours. Okay. So is but that when, when you were phoning up, or when you... You locked on your own. Okay. So you couldn't make phone calls while you were in solitary? No, you leave your phone in solitary. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I had, so one day, but uh, after about 18 months, and everything going perfectly, eh? <clears throat> uh, one of the gods, onside's gods, comes to my spiral at five in the morning, and he said, Russ, they're coming for your phone, and there's no way of getting a phone out of there. But someone had brought me a protein powder about a month before. I'd never seen it before. So I opened it and broke that silver seal, tasted it, then closed, put the seal back and closed it. And when I opened it again, the seal had stuck. Mm. So I thought, no, I'm going to keep this for hiding my stuff, you know. Mm. So that morning I took half the powder out, wrapped the phone in plastic, checked it in, put the powder back, put the seal, closed it. Because if it's at the bottom, they will shake it, you know. So if it's at the bottom, it'll make a noise. So six o'clock, the guards are off. And what they do is they make you strip naked and you jump with your legs open like you're hiding something. And then <laughs> you all walk out stark naked into the courtyard and they do the search. And there's women there, everything. I mean, it's bloody humiliating. And after the search, I walk back into my cell and everything is upside down everywhere. But my protein powder still in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> so the spirits are all high and everything. And five minutes later, I'm summoned to the security office. I walk in there and there's four gods standing, one seated behind a desk and an empty chair. And I didn't sit in a chair for seven and a half years. He says, take a seat. I sit down. He said, have you got a girlfriend called Karen? I said, no. Nah. He said, I had one before prison called Karen. He says, okay. When did you last talk to her? I said, long ago, before prison. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah. So he hands me a letter addressed to me from Karen. So now I was talking to you on the phone the other night. You oh sound so positive. Oh, my God. <laughs> What the actual fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so after some intense questioning, uh, they summoned me up to, about an hour later, um, they summoned me up to the office in charge's office. So uh, they, after some intense questioning, they, they, uh, they asked me um, who made the, you know, where the phone is. And I said, I talk about divine intervention, but the story just came to me. And I said, no, Karen was having lunch in Bulawayo one day. And she met this lady and they were chatting and soon realized that they both had boyfriends in the same prison. So the lady said, well, let me call my boyfriend. There's a guard in there. He can call us and then you can chat. So I had a story. So that, but after I couldn't tell them what the guard's name was, mm. they didn't buy it. Mm. An hour later, um, he's got it up to the office in charge's office. And when you go up there, it's big trouble. They walk in there and there's like 15 big brass officers all standing in a half circle. My officer in charge behind his huge desk and my empty chair in the middle. He says, take a seat. Sat down, sat down, that pressure was there. And him and I got on really well. They said, if you don't tell me what that guy's name is, your life in this prison is going to change. Now I'm shitting myself. So he says, uh, then the question started. What does he look like? How old? What rank? Where did you make the call? How long ago did you make the call? And I'm answering as best I could. And the questions are flying from everyone, all angrier. And then one officer said, do you want to talk to the officer in charge on his own? So I said, yes, please. They all leave, close the door. I said, officer, we've both been through hell. We've, we've watched hundreds of guys die. We've, I've donated endless stuff to the prison service, soccer balls, volleyballs, volleyball net, soccer boots and uniform for the squad. I said, can't you just let the son go? He said, Russ, I don't care about you, but I want the guard's name now. And he was pissed off. I said, officer, I don't know his name. He said, okay. He calls him. He 
put him on death row in the dark cell. Weird. So they escort me up to the condemned section with all the guys waiting to be hung. And the cell was three meters long by one meter, same as my solitary confinement. But the only vent was covered by a staircase and the electric light didn't work. It was completely dark. I couldn't even see my hand. They made me strip naked, gave me three worn-out lacerated blankets, a five-liter container cut off at the top as a toilet, same as solitary, and a one liter of water. They locked me in there for 23 hours and 45 minutes a day. So I was allowed out five minutes in the morning to clean my teeth, five minutes at 10 o'clock to have a shower, five minutes at 3 o'clock to prepare for lockup. It was cold, lonely, and dark. Like I said, you couldn't even see your hand, like being buried alive. And desperate on day six, I got on my knees and I prayed. And I'll never forget the feeling of like warm water being poured over me and a total sense of calmness. So I sat down on the floor leaning against the wall, Within 30 minutes, I heard my Afrikaans mate shouting faintly from the soccer ground, Hey, Russ, everything's okay, my mate. Don't worry. Everything's okay. So I jumped up. I said, hey, fool. Don't worry, Russ. Everything's okay. So I laid on the concrete looking up at the darkness. Within 10 minutes, they unlocked my door. Clack on that noise. It goes right through. Chucking my clothes. Said, the officer in charge wants to see you. So I go out into the blinding sun, cross the courtyard up to his office. And his exact words were, he said, hello, Russ. I said, hello, officer. He said, have you remembered the God's name yet? I said, no, officer. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. You can go back to your cell. And at the exact <laughs> time when I was praying, my sister was paying him 200 US dollars to get me out of there. And that's a true story. Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. So God does look after me. <laughs> that's insane, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you top that one? Um, <laughs> do I ring the bell? <laughs> yeah, ring it. You ring it. It's your turn now, mate. <laughs> But um, so Jesus, man, that's so insane, bro. Um, okay, well, so let's talk about your release. Um, Straight into my beautiful little daughter's hands. Really? Yeah. It was, it was uh, you know, but when you we tough as guys, we can go through a lot as long as you got air to breathe, place to lie down, a bit of grace. But the emotional damage you do to those you leave behind mm. is unimaginable, and my children suffered horribly eh? because, you know, there's a stigma at school, socially, and, you know, everybody was always at our house. It was that house where all the parties happened and, and it was a huge 34 acres in the city and, and I was doing very well. And then there was a dam close to the town, Sima Dam, so we were always skiing and wakeboarding and having fun. So they really, really battled big time. <clears throat> and every time they came to see me, you know, most of the time we were all in tears. You know, it was it was a horrible day. So when I was released and and I ran into her arms, it was it was something else. It was a feeling I can't ever explain. Yeah. So you just served your time. That was why served my time. That was that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So. You now are speaking about this. I am, but I've I started. Uh, it was amazing. I, in, I went back into the safari industry, but now I was guarding for guys that used to work for me. And I lost everything. I lost all my companies went broke. All I got left was two properties. And they weren't big. They were in the city. Um, and then I was actually guarding Jan Forster, who's the CEO of Clover. And uh, on about day seven, he is one of those, he's probably the most intelligent man I've ever spoken to, and I've spoken to thousands of billionaires. 
And he wants to know everything about my life around the campfire. So where my dad was born, what sport he played, where, you know, everything. And then it came to a time um, in when I was in that farm prison. Uh, one of the conditions there is you're in prison for 30 days and you go home for five days, completely free. So you in prison working five day, 30 days, five days home, 30 days, five days home. And in that 30 day, in that five days, I had my homecoming party after eight years, three months. Then I had my 50th. And then I had um, my freedom party when I was actually released. And on all of those occasions, I did a talk. And I just thought I need to, you know, I had so much support. It was unbelievable. And <clears throat> I wanted and I had a lot of time to write a speech. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote a nice speech and I just read it. And i never forget uh, my national rugby coach coming to me and saying, you changed my life this evening, my friend. Mm. And, I, and I thought, wow, you know. And then after I'd done the last one, uh, I did another talk. It was actually a poem that's, that's in the book. And a month after that, my old headmaster, who was the commentator when we were playing national rugby, phoned me. He was a high person in society, everything. And <clears throat> he said, Russ, you know, how's it all that? Um, I need a favor from you. So I said, yeah, and I was quite shocked to have a call from him. They so said, I want you to do a talk to about 100 farmers that have lost their, their farms. They're in a bad way. So I said, no, Mr. Sells, I don't do that. And he said, no, no, no. I heard about your talks. I want you to do this for me. So I said, well, when is it? He said, it's two weeks' time. So I said, well, can I read it? So he said, that's fine. So two weeks' time, I went up to Rory, to the Rory Royal Golf Club, 120, sit-down dinner, talk about pressure. I'm a farm boy. I don't do this stuff. And I got up there shaking, reading all the stuff. And the response was unbelievable. And I was telling Jan Forster about this on Safari. So he said, have you got a copy of that talk? So I said, yeah, it's on my phone. So he said, can I see it? So I showed him. He flicked through it. He said, I've got a new life for you, my friend. This is your calling, and I'm going to sponsor you. Yeah. And yeah, he flew me up to Joburg, uh, put a PowerPoint together with a mock digital. And I started talking in the beginning of 2016. And uh, it's grown unbelievably, but they are just talking Sun City all over, Cape Town International Convention Centre. And the response is unbelievable, and I'll, I'll give you an idea. Now, I, don't, I just want to know, tell you that I don't do this, but, but obviously there's something that you are able to connect with people, and some people have it and some don't. Mm. And like the Think Sales Conference is the conference to be invited to anywhere as a professional speaker. So I go, I'm invited to this one. So I'm like over the moon with unique speaker bureau. Mm. And there's people like Dr. Codrington, um, um, what's his name? Futi Kwai, Futi. Futi Tembe Kwai. yeah. And, you know, there's big guys there. There were three guys from the UK, one from the US, and there are only nine speakers. So I'm like the bottom of the rank. And the, the delegates judge you, you know, out of five. And, uh, but how much did you win? <laughs> no, no. Just tell me. Because so you can't no, really... No, I, I came fourth. What? Fuck them. No, <laughs> shit. But these guys have been doing it for 20 years. 30 years. They're not years years to it. Shit, I was just <laughs> Yeah, so the speaking is going so well. Eh? Shit, and now I've been invited to talk all over in Singapore, Australia, Dubai. Tell me something. What, States. what are people saying? Because there's just so many things that people can latch on to. You know what I mean? Like, there's, you know, there's hope, there's gratitude, there's… But there's yeah, I've only covered like, like a quarter of what actually I put in my talk. Eh? But it's what a, are people It's a 55-minute speech, but it covers everything in, in life. Mm. I mean, you can 
every part of it you can relate to in some way. Is what are people say? What are the people saying to you most? Of you know, they're saying this forgiveness, but is it? it? Yeah, that's no, a powerful thing. Eh? You know, if I said to you, write down on a piece of paper every event, incident, or person you'd like to forgive, that's really bugging you, and you think about it, you'll see how long that list is. It's pretty long. And when you address those things and let it go, it'll change your life. I promise mm. you. I should know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you should. Yeah, and you wrote the book on it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know what I'm sharing with you, bud, and what's and my and my keynote talk is about five percent of what's in there, mm. because the stuff in there, but I mean the reviews have been unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sure. And I don't know if you you know if you've ever written a book, but let me give you some advice. I'm, I'm, I'm publish to. your own book. <laughs> Damn, I promise you, and I'll tell you why. And I don't care. These publishers um, they offered me. Why are you telling me this now, dude? <laughs> Like, where were you, like, nine months ago? <laughs> no, no, because they'll give you between 12 and 18%. Is that what I must go back in that deal? <laughs> they go to your exclusive books, they want 45%. Then the distributor is the one that, and they take 35 You print yeah. the book, so you get, like, two rand a book. Yeah, I speak I to you. Them all. Yeah. And it's almost a bestseller. Then five months, I've sold 1,800 copies already. Wow. Through Just through my website. So, mm. And the only place I sell it is on my website, www.beatingchains.com. Not breaking chains, beating yeah, chains. Yeah, yeah, not breaking, beating. <laughs> and you can get it in the hard copy or the ebook. Go get it. Go get it now. And that'll change your life, I promise you. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's an interesting process. Um, yeah. I mean, how cathartic was writing this book? You know what, but 70% of that book was written on my cell phone. Smuggled cell phone in really, prison at yeah. the farm prison and Fucking emailed hell. to myself. No so way. Could, yeah. That's insane. So it was like compiling all these stories of my memories mm. when I had time to write and then making it into, yeah, putting it in chronological. Did you always know you were going to write a book? No, I didn't. But I, I just wanted to keep record of everything. And yeah. I did it one time and then I started posting some stuff on Facebook and the guy mm. said, please. And then I had endless people from all over. I want to write a book for you. I want to write a book. And mm. then I thought, no, hell, I've already written most of it. Let me when, just finish it. When's the film coming out? I've had four mo movie offers. And the last one was three days ago from Austria. But I'm waiting for the big one. I'm going to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> ring the fucking bell, baby. Ring the bell. Ring the bell, buddy. <laughs> well, actually, you know what, dude? Yeah. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah. Why Why now, not? You, I mean, they made a form, you know. When you finished reading that, mm. you won't stop. For yeah. three nights, you'll be thinking about what I went through. We're going to give you sleepless nights. And you so can imagine the, the Americans and that, you know, it's going to be like, it's, it's out of, it's a, you go through that, it's so in, in your mind. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a compelling story, dude. I think, in, uh, what I mean, just, you know, I came in here cold. Yeah. I'm coming in cold, you know what I mean? That's, <laughs> um, it's something that I think every single person, you know, watching and listening to the show will go, I can relate to that. I can't relate to that shit, but I can definitely relate yeah, to that or something. that or that or that. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something that's, yeah. that's, that's human about it. Yeah. Um, and that's what's, that's what's so powerful about this is that it's, that it's a human story yeah. about human injustice and dealing with the, the pain of being human. You know yeah. what I mean? Which, which, yeah. is, which is actually what life for some reason is all about you know what exactly. i mean like it's through that pain you learn and you grow and you become something that you never would have become yeah. had this exactly. sort of thing you know what i'm saying and you know buddy it's it's about we all love to live in that comfort zone and when pushed so far out of it 
and you have to dig really deep to find solutions to get through there, you grow. You find you learn things that others never have to. As long as you can take the horrors and leave the horrors and take the good away, you you grow. I mean, mm. I'm I'm a very different person to what I was when I went in there. Very different. Oh. Yeah, I'm sure. And I think I'm a better person. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, why wouldn't you be? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Rusty, I think uh, one more th- one more question. I always ask guests. Yeah. If I can, pretty straightforward this one for you, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, but why do you why do you do what you do now? Like what what when you wake up in an, on any given Sunday? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like what gets you out of bed in the morning? I've always been very energetic, but I've, I'm just driven right now. To make a difference in people's lives, just to make a difference, not only to people's lives. So, yeah, there's so much that I've had time to think about that is wrong, and there's so much anger and bitterness and hatred in this world, and I just wish people would see the good and positive sides. When you see people that have got everything and they're just depressed, and you think, "Fuck, see the big picture," you know, and it's made me realize that. That uh, the more people I can talk to and 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 get in touch to hear my story, the more difference I'll make. You know, just to to change lives and so many people driving home after my talk had said you you have no idea how much you helped me tonight. You know, I mean, I get endless calls the whole time and reviews from my talks and my book, and it makes me want to get up in the morning and just keep doing it. But I'm not going to stop. Fucking A, baby. I go worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> Ring that bell. Okay, go go get it, guys. Beating Chains. Where is this available? Beatingchains.com, right? Beatingchains.com. Yeah, com. And then uh, through Unique Speaker Bureau, who's the sponsor of the show. Um, yes. Get in touch and book away, people. Alrighty, wrap it up. Thanks, Thanks brother. Bud. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for checking out the Matt Brown Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.